Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Zero is an excellent place to be because it's, it's how you started forming something, right? It's like having wet clay in your hands and being able to do anything you want with it. You have to remember that almost every disruptor is an outsider, right? Almost everybody who has created things that are incredible, that are the greatest inventions of our time are people who do not necessarily belong to that industry, right? Like Elon Musk or, you know, Steve Jobs, who is was not a coding expert and was not a product designer, right? This is the guy who connected dots. So when people say, well, but I have no experience there, right? I say, well, even better, because what happens when you have so much experience in a particular industry is that you start developing a lot of blind spots. And it's because things get comfortable. It's because things are familiar. And of course, having an expertise is very important. Mastery is very important, but also having the ingenuity, right? And having kind of like this naivete thing, like, I don't know what's going to happen, is very important for success in entrepreneurship. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Maria, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hi, uh, Serini, and thank you, everybody who's listening. How are you? I am great. It is my pleasure to have you here. You have a new book out called How Creativity Rules the World, all of which we will get into. But as you know, we are going to talk about things that have nothing to do with that first. Uh, so uh, given that I've read the book and given the sound of your voice, I wanted to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did that end up having on choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Yes, of course. I grew up in Caracas, Venezuela. And, uh, you know, at that time in the late 70s, it was a period of great economic bonanza because it was the oil boom and whatnot. So the very few, yeah, I would say from zero to 10, it was kind of okay. And uh, 
then it started to collapse for a variety of reasons, you know, corrupt governments and things like that. So I always had, as I grew older, this desire to move out and I wanted to move to the States. And here's why. My parents, although they didn't really have a lot of money, they had a policy which was every surplus goes to go and set me to travel or family trips and things like that outside of the country because they thought it was very important to become familiar with different places and different cultures and things like that. So we came to New York several times and I was obviously in love with New York as a child. I thought it was fascinating. And, um, you know, I, as an intuitive child and only child, I realized very early on that Venezuela was not a place for me because it did not believe in meritocracy. For example, there were things that were very difficult growing up also that I witnessed, you know, coup d'etat that I was older than them, but coup d'etat and, uh, you know, riots, killings and things like that. So what the good thing is that I, Growing up, um, you know, in South America, you become very focused on things like family and friends, loyalty, warmth, that type of thing. And the negatives is that you also learned to you learn how to survive right in very dire conditions Mm -hmm. because, you know, sometimes we had to be under lockdowns because we had, you know, war tanks outside. And sometimes there were like, you know, months without gas and so you had to even like the you know one of the most like rich countries in the world in terms of oil and gas sometimes we had to really uh because of the corruption of the government we had to spend like you know two hours lighting up or like we had to pay somebody to give us gas for the you know for the car more expensive than normal because it was all corrupt so all these things accumulated and i said no listen i really i have to leave this because it does not align with my values and who i am so i moved out uh you know by the time I was like 21 or something. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the idea of warmth and and family and community. And when you said that, it it just struck a memory of the dinners that I used to have with one of my friends from Colombia when I was in Brazil, we would just sit at a restaurant for three to four hours (laughs) sitting and talking. And I noticed that that was very common with South American people. And here it seems like everybody is in a hurry all the time to just get to wherever the hell they're going. And you're a New Yorker, you know, slash South American. So how do we find a balance between those two? And how do we get back to some semblance of community? Because I can tell you, it's ironic how frequently people don't call you, they text, you know, we're like idiots who basically communicate with text instead of, you know, phones or, you know, video. It's mind boggling to me that we've reached this point and we don't seem to place the same value on community and warmth that other cultures seem to. You know, that's an excellent observation. And I think it is a little bit of a little bit of a give and take. If you know what I'm trying to say here is that I appreciate American culture. Of course, I, I'm an American citizen now. I've been here most of my adult life and I love it. But I understand that the bedrock of everything here is business efficiency, utilizing your time to work more. Right. And that's kind of how. America thrives in what they make and what we export. And, you know, it's all about work. And I, um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have 
you know, married a Brazilian. So we are very tight and very connected to the same values of family and warmth and spending time with friends and things like that. So weekends, we can, you know, indulge in very long lunches with friends and things like that, usually in people's homes, because you know that in a restaurant, they're going to throw this check in your face, you know, the minute you drink your coffee, (laughs) you know what I mean? So um, because the the table has to be turned so that they make more money that day and things like that. And but, you know, I think that it is it's important to balance both things as an immigrant. You know, I am, I feel more American at this point than mm-hmm. South American, but I think that the, the, whatever it is important to each one of us as individuals, we preserve it and we keep it. And, you know, you see the same thing in like, you know, Jewish families, for example, or you say, you see the same thing the same way that, you know, people also from Indian families are very tight and they have large families and large gatherings, Muslims too. So, you know, you try to kind of like keep it. To the extent that is, you don't want to erase it, but you want to adapt it, right? And uh, I understand that certain things, for example, the three-hour lunch is Mm -hmm. not necessarily a proper thing in New York. But I have been sitting down in meetings with friends, you know, uh, private clubs and things like that for two or three hours. And it's really fun. It turns, you know, like a long conversation. So those people still exist. It's just that here we have a culture of work and there's nothing wrong with it. And if you think about it, right, I mean, it's worse to have a culture of like laziness. So so I appreciate uh, um, you know, the the things that, you know, may be perceived as flaws, but I bring my own flavor to the table. And, you know, if anybody wants to join me for a three hour lunch, I'm game. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I, I did also see the downsides of of that sort of laziness. And, uh, you know, there's no sense of urgency. I remember living in Costa Rica, I'd go to the cell phone shop. And the guy's like, oh, we're out of SIM cards. I'm like, how the hell are you out of SIM cards? You sell cell phones. They're like, yeah, there's a guy down the street. You'll have to wait for a bus that takes an hour to get here to go 10 minutes from here. And it just – you see that all over the place. Uh, but one thing that I wonder about, you mentioned your husband was Brazilian, that you're Venezuelan. I'm always curious about this uh, with immigrants. And you also mentioned you have kids, right? Yes. Um, so when you think about how to preserve – heritage and culture and then integrate both, you know, the Brazilian culture and Venezuelan culture. How do you do that while also allowing your kids to adapt? Because the thing that I always come back to when I've had this conversation with enough people is language. Like I'm almost a hundred percent sure the first thing to go when I have kids is going to be my native language. Well, you know, my, I enrolled my kids in a bilingual school for that reason. So that they would have not only the, support or the you know they might see it as an imposition to learn a language but also kind of like the academic support and we had to choose obviously spanish is a much wider spoken language and i speak portuguese too but i knew for them it was going to be spanish what they needed the most and so that was one joint effort my husband and i did to have them in the bilingual school and uh, the other thing is you know, telling them stories about the places where we've born, uh, taking that the, all, the beauty of New York is that it has all these restaurants. And not only that, you can also order, you know, all this, 
you know, markets in Queens and whatnot that bring Brazilian goodies and Venezuelan goodies and things like that. So, you know, food is a big and a very important part of teaching kids or anybody about cultures. And I love having them incorporated in that. Sometimes we show them videos or we teach them about a particular, you know, genre of music and things like that. Bossa Nova, my husband loves Brazilian music, so he plays the music for the kids. And so there are many ways of keeping that alive. But at the end of the day, the kids are American, right? And so they understand the heritage and they think about themselves as Latinos, mm -hmm. but they are also New Yorkers, you know, and it's... um New York is, is such a particular place, right? Because you go out and everybody is not necessarily, you know, a melting pot. It's more like we are all different, right? And we are just running around in this very small island and we are being ourselves. And so they can be themselves without us having to necessarily impose one thing or the other. The good news is that they are very fluent in Spanish. And I'm not sure how long is that going to stay on because, you know, once they are out of that school and they have to do other things, they might not practice as, as often as I would want to. And mm -hmm. sometimes I, you know, I talk to them in Spanish and they answer back in English, <laughs> you know, because it's like it's mostly what they know, right, and how fast they are in their answers but you know these are two boys ages you know 13 and 11 mm -hmm. so i'm not going to give him that much of a hard time because it's hard enough to be a teenager you know or a tween yeah. <laughs> um so but yes there is um there is preservation of culture in many ways Yeah, I laugh because that literally is the same thing with my parents. My parents will talk to us in our native language, Telugu, and my sister and I will just reply in English, even though we can reply fluently. <laughs> I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't right <laughs> Hold now. it in, hold on. And our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So one thing I want to talk about is uh, education in Venezuela, because there's one part of the book in particular that struck me where you tell this story about the nuns and uh, you say that much to my parents' discomfort, they were called to the principal's office several times to discuss my rebellion. Sister Rodriguez, a nun born and raised in Madrid who was in her 40s, told my parents, your daughter has the ability to learn all the subjects at great speed, yet insists on doing things her way and is constantly asking provocative questions to disrupt the classroom. It wasn't enough that the obsolete Catholic school system avoided teaching creative thinking. If anyone expressed it, they wanted to crush it. Um, that really struck me. I mean, because I think that I could relate. I kind of saw myself in that story, even though it took me a while to get to the point of rebellion. Uh, and it made me want to ask you, what is the education system like in a place like Venezuela? And how does it contrast to the way that we're educating people here? And then the third sort of question on top of that is, how do we build an education system that prepares people like your kids for the future that they're about to experience? Well, you know, the educational system in South America is colonial, right? Because remember that the Spaniards came and they instituted whatever they had back home, you know, and so they had to do the same. And like, that's why the majority of the continent is Catholic, because they brought everything with them, right? Religion, how you do things, how you educate people. And so... Of course, it's not the same thing as it was 400 years ago, but it is very old. And, you know, being a Catholic, which is fine, you know, that's it's I have no problem being a Catholic. But what I do have a problem is how the Catholic church and the Catholic schools impart education by telling people this is the only thing that you can think, right? And this is the answer. And you don't question that, right? Because it is very intertwined with the idea of religion, right? And so this is what happened. This is the story. This is, you know, the virgin. And this is, you know, the guy who flew to heavens and came back from the cross. And I'm fine with all that, right? But don't mingle that with science and with art and tell me that everything is just one way of thinking because that's dumb, right? And I was just always questioning 
well, if I can get to the answer by this other method, why do I have to follow yours, right? Or like, if I had an idea and I wanted to bring it up and I wanted to talk to the teacher about it, it was like, this is not how it's done, right? So that pissed me off tremendously because I was like, well, you know, you are asking things of me that I am not able to give you because I, I, I know the answer. I know how to finish this. I know how to do it. And you're telling me to follow, you know, your 1912, you know, procedure. And I'm not really feeling comfortable about that. So that is obviously an inheritance of colonization, but in a bad way because for better or worse, the English uh, colonizers had a much better system, you know, and uh, had a different passion for education. And what I think is the problem with the educational system, though, in the United States is that is, first of all, underfunded too reliant on standardized tests, which basically will never really tell you about the proper smarts of somebody it'll tell you how good of a test taker that person is and how many times they went through all those books a million times and tutors and whatever but it will never really tell you the truth about how creative and how smart or how you know disruptive thinking that person has so what i envision and you know that's one of the reasons why i chose this school for my kids is because it involves a lot of different methodologies in teaching, including, you know, allowing more of the kids to dictate and participate in the things that they want to do. And obviously, uh, there are many ways of doing that, including allowing them to get to the answer by whatever route they want. Also helping them to learn how to think and not what to think like this is given to you right and so it's it's um the idea of bringing critical thinking to whatever it is that you're doing is super important because we have as you know in the past you know 10 years been living in echo chambers where we are being fed the information we want to be like reading through our algorithms. We are friends with the people we like on social media because we agree with what they're saying and, you know, and things like that, which is catastrophic if you think about it, because it annihilates any potential for creativity and for thinking outside the box and for, um, you know, you don't have to agree with someone who has an opposing point of view than what you actually believe to be the right thing, but you can actually find nuggets and, and pieces of enlightenment in different points of view. And so I think that it's very important that my kids and the future of education should be more based on this openness of a variety of points of view and allowing kids to find the solutions and also entrepreneurial, you know, uh, points of view and, and like problem solvers in a way that really showcases their talents and not just like, here's your history book. This is what happened. And, you know, like just learn it and regurgitate it. And, and that's it. That, that's really not beneficial to anybody in this day and age. Yeah. Um, so I do want to come back to your rebellious side, uh, but <laughs> tell me about your relationship with your grandfather, because I know that you referenced him throughout the book, and I just got the sense that there was this very special bond between the two of you. 
Well, my grandfather was a very special man because he went through so many things in his lifetime. He was born in a coastal town and his family had come to Venezuela. His parents, actually, both Lebanese, had come to Venezuela, you know, because they needed other opportunities and because, you know, the Middle East at that time, it was not troubled as it is today, but they were also kind of looking for better things for the lives. So they moved to Venezuela and had my my great grandparents had 10 kids and my my grandfather was very smart. And he also was, you know, uh, there was homeschooling and then he was sent to school and whatnot. But he was put in like all these language classes and, you know, painting and music and like all the things that even though it was so, you know, so long ago, it was really nurturing for him. And he ended up going to medical school. He graduated and he specialized as an OBGYN. And then he married, he had my mom and my mother's siblings, and he was a very successful physician and he had an accident, a little accident that was like left him without having the same dexterity that an OBGYN, that the caliber of he thought that he imposed for himself should have. And he, you know, he decided that, okay, I can't be the best that I can. And so I'm going to pursue a different career. And his family, the Lebanese immigrants had opened a bank and he said, I can, I, you know, get a job here because, you know, I, I can't, you know, be practicing medicine anymore. So they gave him a job. And within a few years, he, he was like the third in command of the whole thing. And he was in his late forties. And that was a time the, um, you know, early 70s in Venezuela that the guerrilla uh, was roaming the streets because they were anti-imperial and they wanted to manipulate the government. And they had ideas of communism because people were very close with Fidel Castro at the time. They were even trained by Castro. And so they kidnapped my my grandfather and uh, he spent a month in the jungle with his kidnappers and he never knew if he was going to survive, right? Because you're there, they have like, you know, kept you in an, on a straight jacket and uh, your eyes are always covered. He spent a month in the dark pretty much. And um, that obviously shaped not only his life, but the life of all of us who came after because once something happens in a family like that is generational trauma, right? I mean... Whether we like it or not, it really impacts the whole lineage. And so I, I wasn't born when this happened, but I came like four or five years later. And um, he was the definition of kindness and gentleness and, and creativity in, in the most bountiful form. Because my grandfather was a renaissance man after he got um, released from the kidnap. He... Um, he had paid every cent he had in his life to that ransom. And so he had no money, but he got a loan from that bank because obviously he didn't want to go back. He was like, this is already bad. I don't want to go back to anything that is high profile uh, or anything that can put me in peril again or my family. And so he got a loan and he bought a printing company. And so this guy on weekends would sit down on this patio in his house with an easel and create the most incredible paintings. He would call me so that I would sit 
next to him and say, now you do yours, right? And so he really encouraged me a lot to be me. I used to write this crazy box and he was the only person who would sit down and listen to me telling him the story. So my grandfather was uh, the person who taught me what being creative really is with actions. And, you know, he died um, 17 years ago and I... Um, you know, it's in the book and I was in the, you know, the very beginning of the pandemic and feeling so strange and isolated from the world and, you know, some days sad, some days confused. And I don't know why I had this hit and this hunch that I had to Google his name and he had been dead for 15 years, you know, and I Googled his name and, and I was like, obviously missing him. And I, and the very first thing that comes up is a link to a Reuters video from the day he was released. And I had never seen that before because, you know, who, I mean, my parent, my mom would have never saved that. It, the, the technology did not allow back in the 70s to store these things. And nobody in my family had ever Googled my grandfather's name. And it was a shock because I haven't been back in Venezuela for, you know, maybe 14 years. And I had not seen that house. That house where I practically grew up is the house that my grandparents had because my mom and my dad worked. So I was left there, you know, a lot during the day. And so it was a shock of, you know, the greatest shock I think I've had in the past three years was to find that video. And it, it was somewhat a, um, the beginning of my book. It was almost like a signal. And I wanted to honor him by, by dedicating this book to him. Yeah. Wow. Uh so how in the hell does this rebellious, rebellious creative girl who gets sent to the principal's office with this grandfather end up on the path to becoming a corporate attorney? <sighs> well, because uh, I was a rebel, but I was also in a very difficult situation because I wanted to be a singer and I wanted to be a performer. And when it was cute and a hobby and it was the festival at the school and whatnot, my parents thought, oh, my gosh, she's so cute. But when... I got offers from touring bands and even a um, a recording company had also gotten in touch with me. My mom said, that's a job for hookers and you're not going to do that unless you pick up your stuff and leave. Now, if if that would have been an American family, I would have picked up my stuff and leave and wait at tables and find odd jobs and work at a store. But in Venezuela... If you worked at a, you know, anywhere, you not only risk your life, but also you couldn't make a cent to like rent an apartment or like, you know, so I had really no way to uh, pursue that. You know what I'm saying? With like the context where I lived. So uh, since I had told you before that I wanted to, I wanted to move out for the longest time. So I decided that I was going to go to law school because I was really good at writing and I really liked to read. So I said, these, these two things 
are just the things I'm good at. I can't be a doctor because I don't like blood, and I I'm not gonna study for 25 years. You know, I can't be an engineer because I don't like math. I, <laughs> you know, so it was like all about it was all about elimination. Yeah. And I said, well, listen, I mean, maybe I find some happiness. I you know I was really fascinated by John Grisham, right? And so I read those books, and I. I watched the movies, you know, the firm and <laughs> yeah. wow, you know what I mean? Tom Cruise and whatever. And I, I said, well, man, I, you know, maybe I just can't go and figure this out and, and, and I can move to the States. And I did. Thanks to that. I went to Harvard Law mm. and that's, that's how I moved. And so, yes, it was not the right thing for me, but it was an important bridge in my life, obviously, because I would have never left had it not been because I got accepted into Harvard. Yeah. So you could have either been the next secure or Harvard law graduate. <laughs> that could have been a very interesting thing. But yeah. yes, I, I, since, you know, it's very hard and you would ask any of the big performers from South America. They all needed the support of their family or else they would have not made it, you yeah, know? I think that's probably very true in India as well. Um, what did you find shocking when you came to the United States as somebody from another country? Like what aspects of American culture were shocking or strange to you? You know, I think obviously the first shock is the winter, man. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> that is one shock. Yeah, and, Cambridge uh, winters are brutal. Oof. Well, so that's the first thing, right? It's like how many layers you have to wear and how many things you have to carry with you and how horrific it is. And so that is a thing. And also, I don't know. I think that for, I, I felt very welcome, to be honest. And I had a lot of great friends, both from the international community at Harvard and from the American community. So um, I, I guess... The thing is, well, first of all, right, it, it's like the amount of work that I had to do every day to know what was going on in the class, right? Because it's like, okay, here is your assignment for tomorrow is 500 pages and three books. And, you know, that was every day, right? Literally. And I was like, dude, my language is Spanish. I was like, my, my, my second language was English and it is still. And how am I going to read 500 pages? Right. And so the amount of work and seriousness that it was, it's not that I wasn't serious before because I wouldn't have gotten into Harvard. But the thing is, I realized that the, why this country is what it is, right? It's like there is a, or it was, I'm not sure, this dedication to excel and to work and to put in the work that needed that was needed and some people might not have the desire to read 500 people's but they were pages but they were able to synthesize the information and so you know i knew everybody had gotten already such an incredible training to get to that level and i felt that that was my disadvantage right it's like God, I'm not as good as these other people at reading and, and selecting the info and, and being fast. And, but, you know, eventually I graduated too with everybody and I got a job, you know, that I wanted. And so I, I realized that, it, you know, we had all gotten there for a reason. But I think that I have enormous respect for how hard people work here or used to. I, again, I don't really know. Yeah. 
So at, at some point you decided to leave. And I, I think that what's interesting is I see two versions of this story. One is yours where, you know, somebody finds themselves disillusioned with their six figure salary and, you know, high paying job. One is mine where they could never get that job in the first place. So they had no choice but to do what I've done. And I think the question that will inevitably come up, and I remember AJ Leon and I talking about this as well, people will say, oh, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say, okay, go quit your job, do this creative thing. You're a Harvard educated lawyer. You probably had a mountain of cash that you were sitting on. Um, (laughs) So I mean, AJ was like, no, he was like, the reason that doesn't happen is because you live in New York and you spend more than you make and you're a banker. So you think the money's never going to stop coming. But I I wonder, one, what do you say to those people and what finally got you to leave? Well, I was miserable because this was not my path, obviously. And I had gotten pregnant with my first child. and But before that, I had already questioned the whole thing for a while. And I was like, well, I'm working 16 hours. I'm doing stuff that I don't enjoy. And there is nothing. Look, I had already had like three different jobs at three different law firms. And it was not the law firms. They are who they are. They do what they do. They are very traditional places that function very well and do make a lot of money. But the problem is that the law firms and I were not in the same space. You know, my talents were not for that. And I did not have any desire to do that. Right. And uh, as I got further into my pregnancy, I was thinking, I'm going to have a baby that it's not going to see me because I'm going to be working, you know, 16 hours. Also, this baby is going to know because children are very intuitive that I hate my job. And also, I'm going to say it too, you know, and also, what am I modeling for them, right? Like, am I going to be just this person who's going to always be working for somebody else instead of pursuing my real passions, my creativity, the things? Okay, I knew I was not going to be a performer anymore, but I knew there were other things that I was very good at that could have turned into a business. And that's what I did. So regarding the money, I had a 401k, I had some savings, but yes, it's New York. So we pay the highest taxes along with California and the whole country. And you pay, you know, New York City taxes, New York State taxes, New York, you know, all sorts of taxes. And I, um, you know, I had some savings, but it was not that, oh my God, look, I am, you know, Warren Buffett, right? It's not that. And I just said to my husband, uh, you know, I am, I'm going to quit this job because I can't see myself doing this. There is really, even if I were to stay there forever, because it's really very hard to get fired from a law firm unless you do fraud or something, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's really hard and they always need you because it's all about billables, right? Mm-hmm. So I said to my husband, look, I mean, I just can't do this anymore. And I, so I went back after the baby actually, because I, ha- you know, like I had the baby and obviously that's, it's a big shock having a baby and, you know, being up all night with him and whatever. And I said, well, I'm going back after the 12 weeks of maternity leave. And when I went back, it was literally the day that uh, Lehman and Bayer Stearns and Bernie made of it all sort of like exploded. And our clients were banks. And I was like, you know what? I mean, I'm, I'm so out of here, right? Because I don't really... It's, you know, I, I understand the purpose, but I, it's not my purpose anymore. And I have 
no proud on saying that I'm working with, you know, barristers or like, I don't care about this. So by, you know, that was September and in January they paid the bonus and whatever, because I had to collect it anyway. I had worked already nine months. I mean, three of maternity leave, but the other nine months that, you know, I'm going to get my bonus and I did and I left. And, um, and it, you know, I never looked back. I never second guessed that decision. I never thought, Oh my God, what if I would have stayed there and turned partner I said, you know, this was like literally when I left that building down on Wall Street, uh, it's almost like you took this weight that was, it was so heavy on me. And I said, from this day on, I'm going to live my life and I'm going to be the person I was meant to be. And, and it is, it is exactly what happened. Wow. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age, led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. 
Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, let's actually get into the book. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things you open the book by saying is entrepreneurship is a visionary act of creativity that must positively impact those who are served much in the art, that the art enhances, changes, or enriches the lives of those who experience it. Every artist starts with an idea and then a blank canvas, a clean page, or the, clinking, uh, the cursor blinking on an empty document. And the idea of starting at zero really struck me because I think that there is this tendency for anybody who sees the people they look up to like you and they realize they're just starting, but their basis for comparison is you. And they don't see in their mind. It's like, it's so far to go that they can't even wrap their head around it. Um, so what do you say to those people? Like, how do they get the motivation to keep going when they're at zero and everybody who they look up to is a thousand miles ahead of them? Listen, zero is a, an excellent place to be because it's it's how you started forming something, right? It's like having clay, like, you know, clay, wet clay in your hands and being able to do anything you want with it. And, um, you know, one thing is you have to remember that almost every disruptor is an outsider, right? Almost everybody who has created things that are incredible, that are the greatest inventions of our time are people who do not necessarily belong to that industry, right? Like Elon Musk or, you know, Steve Jobs, who is was not a coding expert and was not a product designer, right? He, this is the guy who connected dots. So when people say, well, but I have no experience there, right? I say, well, even better, because what happens when you have so much experience in a particular industry is that you start developing a lot of blind spots. And it's because things get comfortable. It's because things are familiar. And it, um, of course, having an expertise is very important. Mastery is very important, but also having the ingenuity, right? And having kind of like this naivete thing like i don't know what's going to happen is very important for success in entrepreneurship and everybody has to start somewhere and i think that because we have been used to seeing this curated lives on social media that people don't understand that there is effort that goes into everything right and and that has to start somewhere so for the most part everything starts very very small and most also most, no, but every big thing starts little and in the margins, right? I mean, we, of course, people get like, oh my God, look out, uh, like the unicorns, right? The unicorn companies are like, you know, that are, I don't know, 100 unicorns that are valued above a billion dollars. I don't really know the statistic exactly, but what I'm saying is like, it's very, it seems so easy right now how people get to zero to 1 billion, but you know, there is so much that goes behind that. And also a lot of people start very, very early these days because the knowledge is so easy to acquire and the barriers of entry for that knowledge are so low in comparison to what it was 20 years ago that there is this tendency to believe that, you know, everything has to start and it's going to be a huge success and it's going to have revenues of like, <laughs> all this, you know, billions overnight. And, and that's not how most things are, right? No. So the, the zero is a great place to be, honestly. Mm -hmm. 
I think that the thing that I, if I remember, I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing this, but I said, you know, the greatest thing about not having an audience is that you have sort of a creative freedom that you'll never have again once you do. And <laughs> that, you know, gives you a lot of power to do experiments and try all sorts of crazy things that you just, you're not, you literally are not going to have that freedom again when there's this expectation of, uh, you know, who you're supposed to be from an audience. But there's something you say, and I want to take to go into this. You say, we're living on the front lines of unpredictable change. The avalanche of technology coupled with social, political, economic, and cultural upheavals that we face demand creative solutions to big and small business problems every day. Continuous use of our creativity and willingness to innovate is the only solution that we have to get ahead of these dramatic shifts. And you also brought up some statistics from LinkedIn, the World Economic Forum. And I wonder if you could talk about those because it kind of made me start to look at my career and think, wait a minute, I'm probably better off than I thought I was. And I'm probably much more prepared for this than I thought I was. Yeah, well, you know, the LinkedIn statistics um, in the book, I when the book went to print, it was, I think, 660 million people that LinkedIn scanned the network, right? Because everything that's happening there is recorded somewhere. And But right now, this year, is about 880 million people who are in the network. And the number one skill that is required when uh, employers are looking to hire or promote is creativity. And at the same time, there is this gap that says that it's also from the data collected by LinkedIn that is the hardest to find, right? So that's one thing. And then the World Economic Forum last year issued a series of, you know, articles and, and last year and the year before saying this is going to future-proof your job. If you are creative, you're, you know, you're set in a way. Like you don't have to be a genius coding. You don't have to be the best at what you do. But if you're creative, this is going to really be your shelter, you know, and that's how you're going to be able to keep evolving and growing and pivoting and, you know, being successful. And so why is this? Is because you know, we're we're experiencing the fourth industrial revolution at this point, right? And this is the time where AI is taking over, machines are displacing people. And th the important thing about being human, really, is not only that you're smart and that you're efficient, but it's also this, the, the creativity is exclusively human. Animals are smart, but they are not creative. And what we have right now as a challenge as a society is kind of making this gap between why is creativity important and why people think they are not having it, making that gap shorten to the most small space, right? Between what is being clamored for and what people think they can give because it is the future of, and, and we want people to be employed and we want businesses to succeed and we want to be able to have, you know, a robust economy and, and, and people who are fulfilled. That's very important, right? With what they do. And the only real way to get that if, is with people who are creative, with with people who are willing to adjust, adapt, people who are flexible, people who come up with different ways of seeing things, people who actually spot problems that were not considered before. And this is what this my book is about, right? It's about helping people see things also from a perspective that they may not have considered before, placing art history in a different context that is highly entrepreneurial, which is the truth of every artist, but also 
it's side by side comparing those artists with the greatest entrepreneurs and inventors of humanity, according to what I think it is, right? Because books are subjective, you know, subjective point of view. So I bring my expertise and my 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 adventures and my failures in building my business um, and being an entrepreneur myself to this book so that people can benefit from it and get something that helps them put themselves in claim for themselves, their creativity once again. Yeah. Um, um, one thing you say is that the trick of successful artists and entrepreneurs is to know how to self-regulate, maintaining that fine balance of autonomy with discipline to get things done. Excessive freedom leads to lack of attention and repeated effort that dilutes concentration and focus parameters, structures, and routines counterbalance autonomy. And I think this struck me because I feel like this is just a universal problem for creative people. I see this over and over and over again. I, I think it's largely why somebody like Hal Newport has had so much success with his books because these are the problems that all creatives seem to face. How do they actually solve those problems? Because I feel like they can hear this message over and over and over again. And yet, you know, the number one problem that I get as a response to surveys when we survey our email list is I don't know how to manage my time and attention. Well, you know, I think people would cringe about the word routine, but it's it's important, right? And so having rituals around your life and every day are crucial because that gives you like the parameters, right? I mean, like, here's what you have that you do every day. And when you're not doing those things every day, those are the spaces for you to go wild, you know, knock yourself out. And like when you're not really having this routine and I give examples and history and I give examples, you know, about both people in the arts and people in the world of business on how they actually keep these routines happening for them. But then those pockets where you're not following that, you know, the yoga class in the morning or the meditation space at, you know, 7 a.m. or, you know, the coffee break at this time and the showing up at the studio or the desk or the recording, you know, session or being in front of the canvas, right? I mean, that is the part of mastery, that we all have to get to at some point, right? I mean, that you're very, very good at what you're doing. So this is not contradictory because for a lot of people is that thing that I don't want to have a routine because it really strangles my creativity when the opposite is true. The more you do something, the better. And I think this is a theme that shows up in many different places in the book, not only in the part of like habits and and routines, but also when I mention improvisation, for example, and how important mm -hmm. it is to have a very solid foundation, but to utilize that foundation to play with it. And the only way you can play with the elements that are going to bring the greatest breakthroughs, the greatest ideas is to have a foundation, right? And, uh, you know, I guess that has to come from within. So how people find the motivation is that by doing what they do, and whether it is writing a book or painting a canvas or being a graphic designer, whatever it is that people are doing, they have to 
do that and master it every day until they can have the freedom to come up with all these crazy ideas, which usually it just happens by virtue of being engaged. So people have to love what they, you know, like they don't, they, they can't manage their times because of why? Because they are distracted with social media or with video games. Because, because then it tells me, yeah, you don't love what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, to me, it's like clear. I mean, if you prefer to be playing video games, then maybe find a job as a gamer. Or maybe, <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, like there are, there are things that I, ha- you know, you have to be very honest, right? I mean, it, it, that's the truth. If you can't muster the courage and discipline to be in front of whatever it is that you do every day and to dedicate a a serious amount of time to that not dying like an attorney but like you know a serious amount of time to your craft then you don't like that Mm, i think that's a very clear signal well, I'm so glad you brought this up because you know we we just relaunched our membership community, and when I looked back over the past ten years of building Unmistakable Creative, and I looked at all the online courses I'd taken, I saw one fatal flaw in all of them, and that was that they all ignored foundational skills. Every one of them. You know, here's this marketing course on how to grow your blog. Here's this you know course on how to search engine optimize your website, and every single one of them. I realized would have been completely useless for me without the foundations. Uh, it was, I think it was Twyla Tharp in her book who mentions the karate kid and how, you know, Mr. Miyagi has this kid like washing cars and waxing uh, floors and or sanding floors and painting fences only to realize that he's being taught how to defend himself. And it just blew my mind that this has been completely left out because, you know, I said, even if you succeed without these foundational skills, it's like building a house of cards. You can't sustain whatever success mm-hmm. you've had. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, you said it beautifully. And I think that, you know, there are so many incredible courses, like you said, and resources where people can learn specialized skills. And then they do it and they say, but this didn't work for me. And then like, well, why didn't it work for you? Well, because I never did it, right? Like, I mean, I I, I went through the course, but then I never implemented it. So then you have a problem of discipline. You know, it's not about marketing skills. It's not about how to do SEO and beat, you know, the Google algorithm. It's more about what is your dedication to things? And that's also the problem of what we talked about, the the immediate gratification of things Mm -hmm. is being consumed by people in a way that makes you know makes you think how complicated it is for this new generations to have access to this amazon prime and you know buying things that arrive on your doorstep sometimes the same afternoon right i mean (laughs) seriously this is it's like technology is fabulous but also uh, you know, I actually wrote this in the book. This It's not a magic pill. Uh, mm-hmm. Creativity requires work and discipline. If I would have told you or I would have called the book, here is your magic pill, one hour, and you're, you know, like that kind of title. Like, okay, <laughs> yeah. here, here's like your one hour, you know, thing. And uh, when, when you're done, you're, you know, like once you finish reading it, you'll be on your way. Well, here's the thing. If you commit yourself to doing all the exercises at the end of each chapter, I see you doing incredible improvements. But if you just read the book, which I hope people will find, you know, entertainment and ideas and, you know, find this kind of connections that they never thought about before, because it took me a lot of time to find these connections too, right? But like, if you don't implement these things on your daily life, 
it's really difficult to see the results that you want. And so I do have great hopes that people will understand that the book will come alive if they actually work with it. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, that's always the ultimate compliment is when somebody actually does something with anything that I've written and says, well, I tried this thing that you did or yeah, and I actually did it. It might not have worked the way I thought it was going to, but at least they did it. And that to me is, is a really good sign. Uh, you say that people are becoming more dependent on technology and less independent in their thinking. They're developing a herd mentality and losing their creative power. A brain that's mm -hmm. oversaturated has no room for innovation consuming excessive amounts of visual auditory and tactile stimulus as we have been is like taking a bath in a big tub filled with lavish aromatic salts and bubbles. Once we drain the tub, we're left with a small residue. And that of course struck me because I ended up writing this piece titled information overload is making us stupid, unproductive and poor. Mm -hmm. And what came to mind in particular was a few years ago, my old business partner, Brian was a guest here. We were talking and he offered a free consultation to anybody who took him up on it. And by the time that first meeting happened, the guy who signed up for the consultation didn't even remember why the hell he signed up for it or what it was about. <laughs> and I, so I was reading that this morning. I thought, you know, we actually need windows of non-stimulation because I realized my best ideas have all come during windows of non-stimulation where there are no devices on. I'm literally just using a physical book and a notebook. That's it. Well, uh, Serena, you've said it beautifully. And um, I don't use like words as strong as dumb and stupid and poor, but I think that <laughs> I, I think that that's what's happening. Right. And that is one of the reasons why I just said to you before that when I came to the States and also when I was growing up, and was vacationing here. This was a land where people worked so hard and were committed to their crafts. And, and I think that for some reason, I have seen that declining because technology does a far greater job than many humans. And we have to acknowledge that, but no creative humans. I must highlight that, right? And, uh, you know, when we have, for example, a GPS that tells you the route, But, you know, like this has happened to me so many times, right? Like, like a, like an Uber driver and the, the GPS is saying one thing, but I know that that street is closed because I live in Manhattan and I know that street has been closed for like six months. And I tell that person, do not turn. No, but the GPS says, I said, but yes. However, you're going to make me waste 20 minutes if you take that turn because I know that street is closed. And so these people insist, right? That the GPS says, because that's the only way that, you know, that people have been taught nowadays to think is with the help of technology. And that's the same thing for everything, right? I mean, the, as I said before, the way we consume media is what's on the algo. It is the websites that you have seen before. And so it's coming to you, you know, with vengeance, right? Like, because they want to keep selling you the same type of news that you've been reading. And so why is that we need these pockets of silence is so that we can, first of all, allow the brain to think for itself. Even if you are, you know, just taking a break, your brain never really shuts down completely, right? Even when you're sleeping, you're dreaming or whatever it is. So the brain only shuts down like when you're dead. Mm -hmm. And, but it is up to us to allow those, like you said, it's very common that people get their best ideas when they are 
in silence or when they are doing something that does not require having 50 screens around them and being on the phone talking to someone at the same time texting and you know petting a dog right like all this <laughs> all these things together right and um and 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 you know i think it is it is uh the the benefit of meditation Yeah. Are not only like, you know, people are like, but don't come, you know, I didn't invent these things, right? I'm, I'm just putting together information that has been shared throughout, you know, years, millennia, if you will, right? Like the silence, the power of silence, the power of prayer, whatever you want to call it, right? I mean, I'm not advocating for any particular type of thinking and time alone, but the incubation period where your ideas need to marinate and they have to flourish, they have to be in pockets of silence. And that idea, might you, doesn't necessarily have to come when you are in the silence because you may have the idea three days later when you're like swimming or when you are, I don't know, typing something on your computer, but without the pockets of silence, I think it's going to be very hard for people to actually come up with these incredible ideas. And if you study the lives of, you know, the, the most creative people, they always have some sort of silent practice in their lives, no matter how they call it. Time to think, how, time to meditate, time to pray, time to reflect, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I remember uh, somebody wrote this post years ago that went viral I, I, on Medium. It was like spend an hour a day doing nothing but thinking or something like that. But it made me think it was like, okay, I, I had literally I read that and thought I have an idea for a blog post titled one device free hour a day. It can do wonders for your creativity. Uh, but I think that makes a perfect segue to talking about intuition. And I think you did such a beautiful job connecting intuition with logic. You say that intuition is an accurate piece of information that doesn't come up from using our five senses or from our minds or our experience. It comes from a much higher place than our physical perceptions. Intuition manifests as a flash of insight or repeated series of insights. When you get the hit more than once with the same message, don't ignore it. Intuition is always right. What's wrong is our interpretation of the intuitive message. And then later on, you say that intuition alone borders on the vague and abstract. We must use our higher senses to help us make the right decisions. Our intuition gives us answers that could otherwise not be accessed through rational thinking. And many times it saves us from taking the wrong path. So I think I really appreciated that because it basically wasn't just a bunch of new age bullshit of <laughs> follow your intuition or you know follow your passion nonsense that doesn't have any logic behind it. Uh, so talk to me about how people combine intuition with logic because Robert Greene told me once that mastery is a combination of the rational and the intuitive. You know, intuition hasn't been studied enough because it's not tangible, right? And it's not something that they can, I mean, the scientists can put, you know, a machine and measure it, right? And so, but the topic of intuition in business and in any, you know, endeavor, human endeavor, has come up to the surface lately more and more, right? Because there are things that that humans cannot necessarily explain. Why you took a different path to work one day and you stumble upon, you know, this person who became your business partner or, you know, why is it that you were 
I don't know, guided to a particular book at a bookstore and you took it with you. And then that was your million dollar idea. And I'm just leaving it at the context of, you know, business because in, in like personal relationships and everything is filled with examples of how people follow their intuition and end up somewhere meeting, you know, their, their husband or wife or whatever. But the point is that since it is not necessarily a topic that has been studied and measured, we don't necessarily have a lot of studies to rely on. And so I actually do mention one of the studies in the book, and it's about this uh, professors who analyze, I think it's like 6,000 pieces of data and studies from the biggest databases of, um, you know, like Scopus and Google Scholar and things like that. And they we're trying to find where the big leaps happen. And so the big leaps is like, you know, this big breakthrough that comes from a place where a scientist, an artist, or a business person doesn't really know how they got to that, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. And they found that the common denominator of all those big leaps is when when these people were interviewed, they said it was an intuitive hit. It was an insight. It was a hunch. Sometimes people don't use the same words, but it was something that they were able to get to this breakthrough, whether it is, you know, a, a you know, a big invention or something that advances the arts or whatever, because they follow that into it, that intuitive notch. And so the logical part is that, you know, we have we have education and we have experiences and those are the two things that form our logic right like we have had years and years of formal education but we also are in the world having experiences right i mean we know how to cross the street we know how to you know we we also know how things happen in our businesses we we learn from the mistakes from lessons and things like that and so when when you see a really little kid like a toddler Toddlers are highly intuitive, but they don't have the the logical part, right? Because they they have not had the experience of being in the world for more than two or three years or whatever. And so imagine if you would leave a toddler making decisions, right? I mean, it's like a mess, right? I mean, it's a disaster if you would leave a toddler just making decisions that have to do with like your house or, you know, your finances and things like that, right? But when a child is, let's say, 10, 11, that is like a mind that already can rely a lot of your intuitive hits. And it also can rely on education. So that's an example just for you to think about how these two things come together in a person's life. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's it's important. Right. Because what what Robert Greene said about mastery is basically what I had been discussing before is that you need to have some sort of expertise that you have developed by doing the work, right? That is your logical part, right? And this kind of like moments where the inspiration comes, whatever you want to call it, the muse visits you. Although that's, you know, that's like, as we know, it's, it's not necessarily how intuition, how creativity happens, but the parts where you're like, wow, my aha moment and all that is usually the result of following an intuitive hit, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's how, you know, having you been in those situations where you're like, how can I never thought about this before? And then you're like, I'm going to see how to implement this in my business. And you have absolutely no clue where that came from. Yeah. Yet it works out. Right. And how do you explain that? 
And so, well, I mean, people who love to have everything backed up by science will say, well, because of these processes and you saw it and it was stored in your subconscious for ages. Okay, fine. That is one way of explaining it. I think, in my opinion, I still think and believe that intuition is a very, very important part that people do not utilize and trust as much as they should because they favor logic and the point is to balance both and yeah. and you know i like there are countless of examples in the book of people who utilized both to get to phenomenal moments in history mm. well it's funny you, you say that because i basically have this entire automated podcast calendar and I remember connecting all these dots. Like, I, you know, I think I told you my pattern recognition system is probably overloaded yeah. <laughs> because of the job that I have. Uh, but I remember reading about Amazon Web Services and seeing how Amazon Web Services started as something they used internally for their own needs. And then it turned out that they could sell it as a multi-billion dollar product. And mm -hmm. I got that from two. One of them was from reading a book about Amazon. And another was from Scott Galloway's book called Post Corona, where uh, he called it the flywheel. And I thought to myself, like, wait a minute, how many other companies have done this? Like Basecamp did this. That's how they built their business. And I was like, huh. I'm like, there are thousands of podcasters. I've seen their production process. It's wildly inefficient. I know because they send me multiple emails that I don't want to read just to coordinate a meeting. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, we could turn this into something that we could sell to podcasters. Mm -hmm. And it was just seriously just a connection, a bunch of connecting dots. And it was, but you actually followed your intuitive hunch, right? Yeah. And you, and you said, let me explore this, right? Because one thing is that you had the logic because you had read the box. You knew what Amazon was. You had the information. And then you had an intuitive hit about something that you had never thought about before. But it was part of, you know, an idea that you could potentially mine and explore. And you went with it. The problem is a lot of people will say, Ah, forget it. There is somebody else out there who could be better at this. Or, you know, I'm just too busy with what I'm doing right now to add one more thing mm -hmm. to my plate, you know. Or, And this is where we tend to leave millions of dollars on the table. Because just not following that insight and that hunch. Yeah. And it's a shame, mm -hmm. you know. Well, I think for me, I realized that I needed my personal skunk works, which was I'm not going to involve my team in all these things and, you know, get them distracted from what we need them to do. Um, but I will explore these things and do very small versions of them, take small risks and invest a little bit of time in seeing them so that I don't you know, take away from like the big thing that I'm doing. And I think that's the importance of knowing when the CEO of a company like you can actually be the decision maker and the creative mind behind the decisions, right? Okay, so you want people to do what they do best, but you also want to invite your team to have this moment of freedom, right? And like whatever it is they want to do, you don't want to distract them, but you also want to remember also like from from the 20% uh, mm -hmm. of free, free time of Google, right? I mean, not free time, but like the time that they can dedicate to whatever project they want to pursue is where the greatest inventions that Google has put out come from, right? And so it's important to allow people to have this moment where they are really creative and they can go wild with it. And then you evaluate, you don't, but that's also a problem in America, right? It's like, remember, we are always 
thinking about efficiency, 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 efficiency. And how do you make people efficient is like you make them be the best at what they do, but with such a narrow focus. And then they get old and then you replace them with machines. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. And that is a really big problem of corporate America and America in general is that you train people to be hyper specialists when the world is actually asking for something else. This just doesn't make any sense. And that's why it bothers me when I see this, this gap. And also Adobe ran an entire study. Adobe is a, is a wonderful company that has made a lot of inroads in, in the world and science and business of creativity because it interests us tremendously. And they conducted the service in Germany. Japan, the United States, and they gather all this information and say, you know, what is the most important thing is like to be creative. And so only one in four people said, I am creative and I'm living at my creative capabilities. So they went further and asked them, and what is it that you can't be creative? And they said, because I don't have time, because I don't have the tools, you know? And so you think about it and it's like, you don't have the time because your employer is asking you to just be hyper uh, you know, specialized and you can't really think outside of the, you know, the parameters that you've been given. And when they say the tools, that is a problem because the tools are inside of us. We all have them. We are all profoundly creative, but we don't use them. Mm, wow. Wow. Uh, I feel like I could sit here and talk to you all day. Uh, I feel like <laughs> I'm going to have about a billion dollars worth of ideas just from having read your book. Uh, and just from that one last sentence, I literally thought, wait a minute, there's a thousand other ideas that I could be working on just from what you just said. Um, I want to wrap things up with my final question, which I, I know you've heard me ask. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? <sighs> Well, look, I mean, I think the authenticity and uniqueness of each one of us, it is, is, is the most important thing to respect and to rely on. And, and here's why no two people are alike in the world because each one of us has had our own backgrounds, parents, set of circumstances, trials and tribulations, triumphs and failures. The way that each one of us sees the world and is informed by all these things that I said before is unique. And we want to be able to take these things out of our head and into the world. And it comes just from the, the uniqueness of each human being. So I think it's important for people to respect that authenticity, that uniqueness, that autonomy that makes them who they are. And this is what is unmistakably creative. Is that that space where you allow yourself to be yourself in spite of what you think the world is thinking or will think if you put these things out in the world. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your book, uh, and everything else you're up to. Yes, I'm at mariabrito.com. That's my website is B-R-I-T, just one T, O.com. And uh, my book is How Creativity Rules the World. And it is everywhere. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop, independent bookstores around the country is published by HarperCollins. And, um, you know, I can't wait to hear from you guys. If you liked it or not, just send me a, a, a message. It's, there is a form on my website so you can get in touch with me. I would love to know what you guys thought. 
Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.